Bear with me for just a moment. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Patriot Underground. Today is October 5th, 2023. Thank you so much for joining me, folks, to discover the truth beneath the surface. I really do appreciate everybody out there taking the time to listen. So tonight I have the pleasure of welcoming my friend SG Anon back to the show. I'm very excited about this conversation because there is just so much going on right now on so many different fronts. We're going to get into all of it. So it's great to have you back, SG. Thanks for taking the time. How have you been? Good, my friend. Thanks for having me back. I always love our discussions. I do as well. Really exciting to have this conversation. So I thought maybe we could begin tonight by getting your thoughts on all the recent drama that we've seen since Matt Gates led the charge to remove Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. And since then, we've seen both Steve Scalise and then Jim Jordan officially step forward. And then we got the bombshell news that Trump is not only open to the idea but is now actively traveling to D.C. for the vote, which has the entire Patriot community salivating right now for obvious reasons. And of course, this is a concept that's been discussed in the past, the, the idea of Trump becoming Speaker of the House. But I think a lot of people out there dismissed it as a possibility, perhaps when McCarthy was actually voted in, which once again, strangely coincided with the Q drops in terms of the amount of votes that it would take to secure his position. And the Delta, I believe, was five years to the day that it actually happened. Future proves past once again. But now that we've seen McCarthy's removal and Trump has officially become part of the equation, this raises a whole bunch of possibilities that I wanted to get your take on. So I thought we could start there tonight. What is your assessment of all this maneuvering that's happening right now? And where do you think it leads? You know, you're asking the question that's on everybody's lips right now. And that's one of the things I like about our conversations, Patriot, is that whenever we get together, we talk about the things that are sort of leading edge right here at the moment, right? And that's exactly what we've got going on with this McCarthy situation. I think we need to back up a little bit before I answer the question directly and appreciate the context of a longitudinal military continuity of government operation. The United States government optically has functioned just as it, just as it ever would and just as it always has since November of 2016, going all the way back to Trump's first election win. It is worth noting that the federal continuity directives, which were later implemented during the Trump presidency, were finalized three days prior to President Trump taking office. In other words, this was the plan all along. As we moved into the Trump presidency, we devolved the government. Um, we instituted um, regulatory rollbacks. We refunded the military. We did all of those things, right? And then we put into a situation 2019, 2020, uh, into the 2021 period post-Trump publicly, where those measures were sort of implemented. Now, the reason I bring this up is because it's important to understand that this is a larger scale operation. The mm -hmm. United States Congress, for lack of a better term, um, has been um, essentially playing a part for a grand majority of this. Uh, you have individuals within the Congress who have been contacted, and many who have not, but a lot who have been contacted and were contacted after the vote 
on January the 6th of 2021, which confirmed an insurrection and installed a Manchurian government. And that was the, the catastrophic subversion, if you will, of the United States uh, checks and balances on its own um, federal government protection. Mm-hmm. And so now what we have are a number of things being played out as we look through the legal process over the last couple of years, a tremendous number of legal victories and rollbacks, even without um, progress on the election fraud space, which we're going to get into in just a minute with the answer to this question. We've got a tremendous um, momentum in the patriot community and in the United States as a whole to reshape uh, the system and to utilize the courts and the judiciaries if they were uncompromised um, to restore balance and order to the system in a lawful and due process sort of way. So this, this ousting of the Speaker McCarthy, I'm glad you highlighted that this was part of an operation in the beginning because it's part of an operation in the end as well. We have the Democrats sort of voting on Democrat lines, right? We had a number of Republicans cross the aisle to go with Gates and remove McCarthy, which was an historic event. But what has it done? It has paralyzed funding to Ukraine. Um, that that uh, secret backdoor deal, right, is now no longer going to take place. We have much more infighting and drama being highlighted in the U.S. government, which sort of neuters it as it pertains to the rest of the world, right? And being able to evaluate the effectiveness of our government to respond to situations. Um, The other thing that it does is it opens up the possibility that President Trump could be the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And after a relatively straightforward process where, (laughs) excuse me, I think you could have a House investigative committee or a number of them sort of impaneled in the months leading up to what are going to start the Trump trials beginning uh, early next spring, right? March the 4th, I think the, um, excuse me, symbolic day for that. You could Mm -hmm. have a lot of very exciting things. Now, your question was, what do you make of this and where where do I think it leads? Because it is a counterintelligence warfare operation, things are fluid and and things are event-driven and plans do change. Strategies have to be altered with the layout of the battlefield and the quickest route to victory. Uh, And we know that these individuals on the other side have done everything humanly possible um, to obfuscate and stonewall the march to victory for, you know, any we the people individual, be that at the court level or the level of government or really even in business and finance, right, and law. Um, So what we've got going on, I think, with the House of Representatives is a setup uh, to utilize the leverage of of the constitutional levers of power um, to bring to heel a Manchurian government. I think what's happening here for the first time ever in, in American history, um, maybe human history, but certainly American history, is that we are codifying into our case law precedent. We're codifying into our records for future generations. And I think it's going to go to the Supreme Court before it's over. How do we legally respond to an attempted overthrow of the United States government? And that's exactly what we have going on on mass, right? At multiple levels. This isn't just a federal government level. You had a number of states governors uh, who were highlighted by Mike Pompeo in 2018 as having taken Chinese money. And Pompeo reminded the governors in the room that we know uh, we know which which of you took Chinese money. China knows as well. Um, you should probably be aware that we know. And so, you know, in this process, we have a captured operation. And how do we respond? legally to that? And how do we build out a strategy that uh, gets the root cause of the issue? Of course, the root cause of the issue, I think, is contract fraud more than anything else. The Constitution of the United States of America is a contractual document. It's an agreement between the sovereign soul, the spirit of the, of the living being, and the social um, 
compact, if you will, the social constructs and compact that emanate from government, which is essentially an organized form of control and a necessary evil. And so you have a contract that is melded between the two parties, right? The need for the evil in order to maintain an organized society, but a contract that limits it to the greatest extent possible and empowers and enhances the living soul, the human being to do the things that they wish to do right legally within some form of order that allows for everyone to get along. And it also provides a redress for everyone if they have an issue. And so this is a redress at the highest level. I think it would be incredible. Um, this is just speculation hypothesis, but I think it would be incredible for President Trump to end up as a short-term Speaker of the House and kick off a lot of con uh, congressional investigations in the House of Representatives to inform the impeachment inquiry. Um, and then if he were to uh, either bow out of the speakership or maintain the speakership through next year. I think you would what you would see, and that could go two different directions, but I think what you're going to see either way, no matter how it goes, is the involvement of the 25th Amendment probably coming from Kamala to try and save her own skin. Um, Biden, I think, is gone anyway. I think they're going to vote to impeach Biden, and I think the 25th is going to get called on him before the impeachment can even happen. I think he's actually going to get exited that way. And then we're going to look at an impeachment inquiry and a birthright issue and a, a right to hold office issue right with Kamala Harris, because that's sort of a revisiting of the same problem that allowed the traitor Hussein Obama to do such colossal damage to the world. And we haven't even broached that issue yet. Right. We're not even to the meat of the discussion with the deep state, which is Obama um, mm -hmm. and what happened at the behest of Obama and how Obama became. Um, sort of inaugurated into the House of Saud, where his bloodline comes from, the types of things he he did um, on these islands and in some of these secret military bases to American service members. Uh, these are things that you know we don't talk about very much in the community, and this is critically important to how the world ended up in such a, a quite frankly, a cattywampus messed up state. And so I think Kamala is the soft pill uh, to begin that process to really look at these things like citizenship, qualifications, eligibility to hold office, past history, where were you born? Um, because these are constitutional protections that are defined in our documents and they've been pushed to the wayside, Patriot, quite frankly, for a very long time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, we, we all have believed because Q told us that in the end, the military is the only way. and. I was one of the people, quite frankly, I was among those who was really questioning whether or not we would even see this scenario play out with Trump becoming Speaker of the House. And certainly when McCarthy got voted in, I didn't think we were going to go in this direction. So this is a very interesting turn because obviously we've got, as you mentioned, we've got the Trump trial coming up in March. And wouldn't it be interesting to see these two things running parallel, Trump launching all types of investigations while they're, you know, while they're going after him. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And I do think that it's going to be some sort of a 25th Amendment. I do agree with you there. Uh, let me ask you this. I wanted to pick your brain on another very recent issue or a topic, I should say. And that, of course, is the EAS. And obviously, yesterday was the fourth. And it turned out that the FEMA test went forward without any obvious disruptions. And I have to say that was my gut feeling right from the beginning when it was announced, because I never imagined that the enemy would telegraph and attack that specifically in terms of date and time. Now, certainly we know that they have to tell us their plans in accordance with their occult beliefs, their twisted, warped religion, but they do it always in a deceptive, cloaked manner. But I didn't really think we were going to see a large scale frequency attack through the cell phones transpire according to that scheduled event. Now, certainly I know that this technology exists, 
And I think everybody out there in the audience who's been paying attention and been part of this journey now is very well aware. And this was in the works. And I mentioned the cabal telegraphing their plans just a moment ago, the movie, The Kingsman, which I've talked about many times on my show in the past is a perfect example of that. But here we are, and it appears that nothing major transpired yesterday. So I think that begs the question, why do you believe that there was so much anticipation and expectation surrounding this date? And what do you think is really going on behind the scenes? Because I mean, I've speculated that perhaps the White Hats scheduled this test in order to prepare the public consciousness for what's coming. But certainly there are many other angles that perhaps I'm not seeing. So what are your thoughts on what happened yet? Or I should say what didn't happen yesterday and what all of this drama was all about and where it came from? Well, you know, I think it, <clears throat> I guess my thoughts on it are twofold. The EAS test has been, and, and, and all systems tests like that, right, has been in the works for a while. We saw the beta roll out during the Trump administration for such a time as this, right, 2018, I think, to the month, October of 2018. Um, I think the confusion uh, in the Patriot community, or maybe the, maybe the dichotomy is a better way to put it, where you had individuals sort of on one side that were very concerned about the possibility that this was a vector for an extremely nefarious weapon which is extremely possible because we have all the patent work. We have all the research documentation. You can go look up Dr. David Martin's, you know, research with MCAM. Um, it, it is very clear and very apparent that frequency warfare as a way to mess with or um, further degrade or even weaponize uh, cellular biology and cellular matter. That's, that's absolutely real. Now, that being said, um, the reason I didn't publicly take a stand on this one way or another is because I had my own personal evaluation in my own personal evaluations. I had come to a couple of different conclusions. If it was a black hand operation and if it was that vast and that expansive, then the idea that we were actually winning in the war wouldn't make any sense, which on its face flies in totally flies agree. against logic and, and runs perpendicular to very clear, apparent evidence that we have. You know, we have things that are very obvious, like all of the different things with Trump's mugshot, the, the arrest that day, um, the movement of different military assets throughout the airspace. Um, you know, individuals that like you remember Ron DeSantis when he was at the, uh, the debate. Uh, one of the debates with Vivek and uh, looked around and then raised his hand. I mean, this is a guy that's not that stupid. Um, Trump just came out of the United Auto Workers speech in Michigan and said, you know, in my first term, that was what was called major disruption. And then in my second term, and then he kind of looks around the room and everything goes really like so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. And he looks around and he says, well, I guess we're, we're kind of seeing it right now. Nobody yeah. wanted mm -hmm. this, you know. Mm -hmm. So we have bona fide confirmation that there are things at play. And then yet we also have, um, I think, cause for concern in some regards. But in my own you know, research into that topic, I couldn't find anything to corroborate one side or the other empirically. And I ended up um, just deciding to break down the time frames, 1420 to 1450. Um, and if you add up 142, you get seven. And if you add up one, four, five, you get 10 and 10 plus seven is 17. And that was sort of where I, you know, looked at it from my own personal lens. But again, I mean, 
this was something that I think Patriots needed their, to practice their discernment for. And I think it was a, a fantastic exercise, quite frankly, to flex some intuitive muscle mm. um, and really, you know, dig into how, how good are we at discerning and using our own judgment when we're presented with conflicting information that has evidence for concern on both sides of the aisle. Um, here's what I think is actually at play with the testing of emergency alert systems and not just in the United States, but around the world. We've had seven national emergency alert tests in the last three months um, in different nations around the world. And a couple of those nations included Russia um, and Japan. So what we've got going on is organized second and first world countries that are heavy power players and heavy hitters in general worldwide balance of power and geopolitical sway are preparing for some sort of emergency um, scenario. And they seem to be doing so in a coordinated time frame. I mean, you're talking about, again, 90 to 120 days, and you've had that many separate tests. They had tests run in the Mediterranean area, one in Western Europe, now the United States, and a couple in South America. Um, and what's incredible about this process is that these tests, these rollouts, I think, are testing whether or not the ability for the good guys to overreach whatever infrastructure remains from the bad, the, what we would call the black hat actors and their communications control network. Um, I think that's exactly what's occurring here. And I also think that's why in the United States of America yesterday, we had a number of individuals in the population report that they received a national alert. And then they had, and then there were many other individuals who reported that they received a presidential alert. So it appears that we had some sort of conflicting um, um, grab for post-protocol control um, mm. and being able to actually um, lay out a message in the digital space completely uninterrupted, right? We have to be able to blanket the entire space. And the issue is you're trying to throw a wet blanket on a space that is essentially just a bunch of hot embers and coals. So you have to be able to make it work long enough to get all of the fire out before any of those coals can burn through the blanket and set the fire off again. Um, and that's, I think that's exactly what we've got at play here. And I also think that's why these tests are happening in these other nations as well, because eventually some sort of simultaneous message that I think is going to involve a worldwide sort of up to the brink, if you will, um, situation is going to be needed. And the capability to deliver that without interruption is an absolute necessity. Absolutely. So you, what you're saying is there could still be a sort of a comms war going on behind the scenes between the white hats and the black hats, and in essence, to ensure that when this moment comes, and you know, you've talked about how this is a fluid plan and that that things change in war, and I certainly am in agreement with you. But when that moment comes, there can't be any mistakes. There, well, I don't even know if that's the right way to say it. There can't be any interruptions. This has to be something that they can completely control the air, the communication waves, and not just here in America, but all over the world. And so we see the synchronicity of all these tests that are happening right around the same time. It's certainly, I can't remember because the, you know, the naysayers out there will tell you, oh, they're, they're always testing the EAS and they're always testing this and that. I can't remember a time when I've, as you pointed out, when we've seen so many of these in such a short period of time and with everything, of course, with the overlay of everything that's happening in the world right now and everything that we know is coming, certainly it points in that direction. Now, do you think, and I just want a more quick question on the EAS and then we'll move on. Do you think that when that moment comes, we're going to get sort of a, a precursor type of a message, almost like, um, hey, get to a safe place uh, by whatever time just to kind of get people off the streets or do you think it's all going to come at one moment just 
how do you think it's going to play out? I know, I know I'm kind of putting you in the, in the speculative arena once again, but I think, I think probably a vast majority of the audience knows that. And when we're speculating, certainly we're, uh, we're not certain, but um, curious to hear your thoughts of when that moment actually arrives, do you think we're going to get sort of a precursor message? How do you think it's going to play out? Um, you know, it's difficult to say. I'm, when I envision this happening, I, th- I think of a couple of different things. President Trump has highlighted that this is um, a conflict that is happening now with the United States of America that is worse than any conflict we've ever had before. And of course, the awakened patriot community out there with the proper perspective at this point, having researched right vigorously for three plus years, and many of us out there for much longer, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of us are aware of that. Um, but when we talk about conflicts, you know, World War II, uh, sort of the the um, the litmus test, if you will, for the American military muscle, right? And that's the the iconic war that everyone sort of goes back to. It's the biggest war in recent memory. Uh, we still have some veterans left over from that generation, but we are losing them very quickly. Um, but but we do still have some holdovers. We've got the Vietnam War, um, which didn't necessarily generate an emergency alert per se, but brought us the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we've got China now involved in Cuba. Um, and could and then could very well turn into something along those lines, because remember, China and Russia have an agreement where they enter into a military compact with one another. Um, uh, should one of them be directly attacked from a large superpower and they identified essentially NATO and North America. Um, so I find that very fascinating. Then we've got 9-11-2001, which is the the time in recent memory that most of us remember. There was a national emergency alert issued. It was uh, issued by the New York City Police Department, I believe was the audio back from the, the call. Um, <clears throat> there was a brief description of what had occurred that day. And then there was a message to essentially seek shelter if you were in the affected area. Um, I think we see something along those lines. And I think we see... Um, at the conclusion of whatever initial message is sent out, um, further information or further details will be available in X amount of time, uh, whether that's one hour, two hours, four hours, one day. I mean, it, it really just depends, right? It depends on how the situation t- you know, turns. When we say that it's fluid, it's fluid in the sense that we're trying to siphon off uh, through the assault th- on the economy and in the cyber uh, warfare information space, the digital space, right? We're trying to siphon off the ability of this deep state hydra around the world to continue self-sustaining itself. And what makes that so difficult is unless we cut off access to fuel, food, um, the raw infrastructure of society, power, things of this nature, then the beast is always going to have a guaranteed source of funding. The way it's set up is it's self-fulfilling, right? If you don't want to turn the we the people component in the, that's caught sort of in the middle of the web into cannon fodder, uh, we have to go about this in a way that siphons off the ability of the machine to continue to self-sustain. And that includes in the warfare area, in the communications and electronic area, um, and any secret technologies or, or um we'll call them next generation technologies or weaponry, things like that, that they may have stockpiled away in some warehouse in, in the side of a mountain. And that's a very real concern, right? We saw that sort of come out with Maui. I still believe that to be a retaliatory attack against Space Force. And it would just happen to also accomplish a lot of the other globalist goals 
uh, with with population control and land ownership and forcing the natives off of the land, right? The same fashion they've stolen land for hundreds of years. But I believe the primary motive of that was to affect the 15th Space Surveillance Squadron's ability to act essentially as the Pacific Rim perimeter defense for uh, ICBMs and any sort of large-scale um, aerial assault. So we've got you know a good a good basis, I think, when we talk about this EIS for it could go a lot of different directions. There could be a lot of different information on it. The events that spawn it off, I think will be very important as to how the message is delivered. Um, but I think that it will probably be delivered in stages. And I think time frames are going to be uh, listed in each stage. Awesome. All right. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk a little bit about geopolitics. Now, over in the Russian-Ukrainian theater, I guess we can start there. We're seeing an increasingly dramatic rift between Poland and NATO, which, of course, at least on the surface, it's stemming from this war of words between Zelensky and the Polish prime minister, I don't remember his name, over a grain dispute, which amounts, in my view, to little more than a cover story, despite the real revolt. I mean, it actually is true that the Polish farmers are really pissed off over the flooding of the market with this cheap Ukrainian grain. I'm not saying that's not true, but I don't think that's in essence, what's really going on here. But I've said all along that, in my view, eventually, NATO member nations were going to move forward toward outright defection, whether by way of military coup or some sort of internal revolt by the people. And this, of course, is mirroring what we're seeing play out in Africa. Now, the, the nations of that great continent, they've aligned themselves with Russia for economic and military support, and so they have the ability to oust the colonialists who have been stealing their resources for centuries. And it was, I think, I believe it was just announced today that French military assets are withdrawing from Niger. So what do you make of all these developments on the geopolitical stage? What do you, what's your feeling on the rift between Poland and Ukraine? And how do you see it contributing to this climactic moment that we're building toward, which you really just touched upon a moment ago? Well, you bring up a really, really interesting um, set of topics there. Let's take it in two parts. We'll talk about um, you know worldwide geopolitics in one segment, and then we can focus on Eastern Europe specifically. Okay. Let's start with Eastern Europe. The Ukraine conflict is going to be really important uh, coming up for a lot of different reasons. I think one of the most important reasons is that there are two primary vectors for black market weapons trafficking, arms trafficking, drug trafficking, and biological pathogen trafficking out of the Ukrainian countryside. Actually, technically, there's three, but they lost the third one when Russia overtook Crimea, I believe, in 2014, 2015. Um, so out of Ukraine, you have the Romania-Moldovan corridor that heads down towards the Balkans and the Aegean Sea and then down into the Mediterranean. You can also dovetail in the other direction and go down through Istanbul and what was uh, Constantinople of old, right? And, and then you're in, into the Middle East. That's a trafficking corridor for a lot of this. The other corridor primarily comes up through the Ukrainian countryside in the northwest, through Poland, and then up through the Baltic states. Um, and out of out of Europe that way or up to Finland and then out of Europe vis-a-vis -vis the, the Baltic Sea. It can also sometime, sometimes go from Poland across northern Germany and out, then out Denmark. So what you're talking about here, when we're talking about saber rattling with Poland, it's also worth noting that Romania has been saber rattling with Ukraine as well. No one's really talking about it a whole lot, but there have been a couple of Ukrainian drones that have been shot down in Romanian airspace. And the Romanians have are sort of you know coming to the stage as having a big problem with this, 
um, believing that there's some sort of incitation going on or some sort of greater message, right? Um, recently, a Russian drone reached the Romanian uh, border, which I also think was a message from Russia sort of to the same effect. Um, so the Romanian, and, the Romanian and Polish governments, which sort of you know, border Ukraine in, the, in these corridor areas and act as first, dump, first dumping grounds, if you will, for movement of these things, are now having a big problem with Kiev. And we have to wonder, why is that? My, my, in my estimation, I think the reason that for that is because Kiev has provided no return on investment. There has been no safety and security provided as a result of this conflict with Russia, because these governments and other governments in Europe are aware of the types of activities that have been going on in Ukraine and in other former Soviet states as well. Um, when we say former Soviet, we're talking about the Soviet bloc from the 80s and early 90s. And so the Ukrainians have a lot of dirt on these individuals that have been trafficking all manner of things in and out of there and money laundering themselves, you know, all of the way back to the stone age. Um, they have the largest money laundering operation happening in the world right now is going through Ukraine or certainly one of the largest top three without question. And so those individuals in Kiev, all of the oligarchs and the Kiev government, not just Zelensky, but you know, the government bureaucracy in the background, much like the United States bureaucracy, they have all of the dirt on a lot of these ministers, staffers, deputy ministers, assistants, regional coordinators, etc., from these NATO member states that have been participating in some pretty, de pretty deep crime. And now we have individuals in those member states that are, <laughs> excuse me, realizing that the likely outcome here without some sort of large-scale intervention is Russia's um, obtaining that information and then announcing it to the world and incriminating them. And so I think that what we're looking at, quite frankly, Patriot, is a NATO defensive safe face operation launched, launched against Ukraine. Um, I think the setup is coming for some sort of Ukrainian provocative event where the NATO countries will, or certainly one of the NATO countries will claim that this has happened with Ukraine and will attempt to go in on their own. And I think that's going to put mm. kinetic conflict directly between Russia and NATO forces. Wow. Well, that would be interesting. My goodness. All right. I, 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 if we had more time, I'd dig into that a little bit more, but I want to I get your views on as many things as I can while I have you. So let's switch gears a little bit. Now, we talked about the Pacific Rim. You talked about the Pacific Rim briefly. I wanted to get into that in a little bit more detail. Now, in the past, you and I have discussed the problem areas there, at least some of the major ones, like obviously the reunification of Taiwan with mainland China, the reunification of the Korean Peninsula, and the ousting of the illegitimate cabal puppet Kushida in Japan. And as time has progressed, we've seen the ratcheting up of tensions on all these different fronts. And certainly we know, <clears throat> excuse me, that there are still uh, many biolabs and trafficking tunnels that exist underneath Taiwan that need to be dealt with. And I've long suspected that North Korea is going to play a central role in this upcoming scare necessary event that Q famously warned us about. And we've also seen Japan openly threatened reportedly by China with nuclear weapons in the event that they intercede or interfere with any military operations against Taiwan. And obviously, they've been running military drills encircling the island now for quite some time. And I don't think they're doing that for no reason. Now, obviously, we can talk about that a little bit, but clearly there are different perspectives on how all of this is going to play out. And I want to get yours, but it seems to me that we're moving very much in the direction of seeing kinetic action in this part of the world, in the Pacific. And it seems to me like the only question now is what the trigger point is going to be that sets all of this in motion. Now, 
Obviously, we know it was the Russian incursion into Ukraine that represented the beginning of the endgame operations to deplete NATO military resources, or perhaps, as you just described, it could go in multiple different ways. It could be very interesting to see these different nations turn on Ukraine like you just described. Now, I've always thought of it as, as a sort of wholesale defection, but I'm going to ask you about that in a little bit more detail in a moment. But in the Pacific Rim, I do believe that an invasion of Taiwan is imminent and that it's going to be the accelerant to right the wrongs in this part of the world that I just highlighted. So what are your thoughts on that? And give us your most recent assessment, I guess, and build upon a little bit about what you said in the Pacific Rim, the geopolitical restructuring that seems to be progressing toward a flashpoint, in my view, of open conflict. But I'm curious how you see it. Um, you know, this this is a topic I think that we haven't talked about a little bit in the Patriot community in great detail, and it's worth revisiting. The Pacific was a major, major component of a number of different conflicts, not just World War II, right? Um, and we're going to see some restoration of some really serious and egregious wrongs that have occurred in this area of the world over the last couple of hundred years. The subjugation of the dynasties of China is certainly one of those. Um, but we also have the subjugation of uh, the rightful Korean ruling classes in both nations. Um, you know, we've got the the theft of Japanese culture in a lot of way, in a lot of ways, and in, in um, excuse me, in favor for replacing it with this. Um, remarkably high-tech, ultra-modern society. And that's nothing That's nothing at all to take aside culturally one way or another. Um, I'm not suggesting that. What I'm saying is that a lot of things have been done without the consent of the people, and the people through their generations have sort of uh, gotten accustomed to it and gone along with it to the best way uh, you know, possible and preserved their own traditions and histories to the best of their, of their abilities. Now, that being said, the Pacific, I think, is going to be spawned off by an event from North Korea. Um, President Trump has highlighted a number of times that Kim Jong-un is a friend of his with a big red button. Um, he's talked about Ron DeSanctimonious's uh, incompetence as it pertains to foreign policy, and North Korea was one of those that he hit Ron really hard with a couple of times. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We also have Q saying that North Korea's strings got cut um, and that now we have essentially a, a player uh, inside the field, right, an inside actor, someone who's capable of giving us a great deal of flexibility, leverage, and control because there are so few international and diplomatic constraints uh, left that can be imposed on North Korea, right? Um, it's actually quite astounding how that leverage position has been played out. And so what do we have North Korea doing uh, really over the last couple of months nonstop? They've been saber rattling with the South Koreans. They've been um, firing back up the sort of petty drama that happens at the um, uh, the armistice zone there, right? The the armistice line from the from the war. Excuse me. They've also been test firing missiles, and so we've got um, missiles. I think are going to be heavily involved in some of this conflict, this expansive conflict before it's over. Uh, Russia is also bringing out large uh, large scale, long range nuclear capable missiles for testing. We've got the New York Times reporting just yesterday that it looks like they're gearing up for a nuclear test in the Arctic. We talked about that on an audio file about three or four months ago, that these tests were going to become larger and, and more dramatic in scale because this was about a repositioning of a lot of military equipment throughout the world. Um, what I think happens as a result of North Korea, I think I think you're going to see North Korea strike South Korea, and then I think that's going to spawn off a conflict between the Chinese-backed North Koreans, bringing China into the fight militarily, 
the United States, um, uh, black hat actors, if you want to call it that, or anything remaining in the U.S. Pacific assets that are not loyal to the cause, if you will, loyal to we the people and the Japanese government. Um, and I think that's going to be the vector by which we drop a lot of the um, traitors and problem actors, if you will, in the governments of some of these nations on, on on what would be our side of the coin in this in this hypothetical conflict, because President Xi is already doing that within his own government. And I think he's doing that in preparation for conflicts or excuse me, an expansion of conflict later. Um, just recently, Xi sacked his defense minister and over 200 personnel from the PLA's rocket division. And so this was a space-based division or a space-oriented division of the Chinese military that's very, very important. Um, and they just launched a mission about three weeks ago that no one has been able to get a peep out of anyone um, in or out of China about what it was about. And so these times that we're living, I think, are um, symbolic in a number of ways. We are righting a lot of these wrongs that have occurred, but we're doing so in a fashion that uh, ruins their legacy for history um, it totally exposes how they manipulate the different levers of power from military to research to academia to big finance and government and the incestuous relationship with the private and public sector in areas that lead to these sorts of events, right? We're, when we're really talk, when we talk about black hat actors in any naval arena, we're not really talking about um, enlisted personnel and we're not really talking about uh, most, you know, 80 plus percent of all of the, the flag officers and brass either. We're talking about the 20% of individuals who also are, are enormous stockholders in private corporations like Raytheon um, and Northrop Grumman. And so we have um, a large amount of exposure that occurs you know, in this process, and we still get a chance to return some of the territorial and generational wrongs that have been committed. That's exactly what we're seeing right now in Eastern Europe. It's what we're seeing right now in Africa. It's what we're seeing in the Middle East with the formation of this Arab League and the Palestinian, the, the Palestinian Authority is now on the lips of at least a couple of different governments. There's good evidence to show that um, the earthquake that occurred in Morocco, for example, um, may have been related to the Moroccan government's formal stance on the Palestinian Authority versus the government of Israel and the types of conversations that those two entities needed to be engaging in. Um, that earthquake happened just a number of, uh, just a couple of days after those statements, as a matter of fact, uh, was absolutely a, a, quite a devastating event. And so we're looking at, I guess what I'm, what I'm, the reason I'm bringing that up is to highlight that we're looking at political power change happening in all areas of the world and individuals uh, in their respective governments are coming out to the forefront now that the chains of the U.S. military industrial and financial complex have been uh, sort of cut off or curtailed to a great degree. They're now coming to the forefront and sort of saying how they really feel. And that's part of the healing, I think, of humanity overall. We have countries around this world, Patriot, that have been enslaved to this cabal and have never had control of their own land for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's I mean, right. you're talking about generations of slaves, some of which... Uh, were aware of, the, of their slavery, but many of them not even aware because they were just too busy um, attempting to maintain the basic necessities of life all of the time. So for the first time, a lot of these countries around the world are, are being cut away from the English crown and they're being given true self-determination and the, the expansion of conflict in the Pacific, uh, the coming conflict, excuse me, in the Middle East and in North Africa, specifically Northeast Africa, um, all of that is going to sort of, I think, inform a return to we the people sovereignty in all of our respected areas in an appropriate fashion. 
Absolutely. Well, you know, you briefly mentioned the Middle East there, and I was very curious to get your take because that's, you, you, I mean, you talked about the coming conflict there. Uh, so I guess I can just be very direct. I mean, can you can you explain uh, how you think the Middle East is going to play out? Because you've wargamed the Pacific brilliantly. I'm curious to hear how you think the, uh, what what you think the coming conflict in the Middle East is going to look like. Um. Uh, quite frankly, I think the coming conflict in the Middle East is spawned off um, primarily by Israel claiming defensive actions and going into Syria and forcing the Russians then into the conflict because the Russians have uh, sort of a loose military compact with Syria. It's, it's not it's not bona fide and there's a lot of exceptions to it, but it's sort of a loose agreement that if Russian interests are also at stake here, um, and especially kinetic interests, you know, on the ground, Syrian air bases and, and different resource field, fields and depots and things like that, that they will um, step in on the side of you know, the current Syrian government. We know that Iran is also <laughs> sort of pursuing right now diplomatically similar ties with Syria, and they also are, are actively engaged in military cooperation with the Ministry of Defense for Russia. Um, additionally, Iran and Saudi Arabia are attempting to normalize relations to the greatest degree possible. Uh, there's a lot of differences that are being put aside by the respective leaders of these nations so that they can try and find enough common ground to work together towards what they believe to be an ancient evil that's there in the Middle East, which, of course, ties back to the Mossad and the control of different, well, you could call other sentient beings that have been interbreeding with mankind for thousands of years right under our noses. Um, Egypt is going to be a part of that emerging coalition as well. And then we've actually got a negotiation or that we did have a negotiation recently between Saudi Arabia and someone in Washington, D.C. And I forget the, the name of the individual that was taking part in those negotiations that was attempting to balance um, interests, U.S. interests with the interests of Israel and Saudi Arabia in a three way sort of a three way triad. Right. Which if you look at that in a military uh, stratagem lens, if you sort of get an agreement with one party and you know, you get an agreement with this other party who could end up conflicting with you later or or in a contentious dynamic with you later, but that party also has an agreement with the same party you do, then the this other party, which in this discussion would be the United States, would sort of have um, a, a forced neutrality that would be difficult to overcome, right, in the in the initial first stages. It's, it's a great way to set up a failure to start. Um, and so what I believe to come in the Middle East, quite frankly, is that Israel is going to go into Syria. We're going to see an expansion of those conflicts to quickly include what amounts to an Arab coalition against the Israeli state. Um, and you could see, you know, Israel head down into Gaza and attempt to go into uh, Egypt and get control of this, the Nile River Delta. And I think that's a very big possibility as well. Um, I know that's a little bit of a run for the Israeli military, but the Negev Desert and the Sinai are pretty expansive. And there's a lot of history and a lot of artifacts down there um, that they would absolutely love to get their paws on. Um, and that that ties back to what's going on in the Middle East as well, right? This is, you know, in the Middle East area of the world, especially, but all around the rest of the world, um, if one side can um, achieve a goal that is more than just a military victory on the battlefield, if they can achieve control of the digital space, or if they can achieve um, repatriation of a very valuable or historic priceless artifact for humanity or some component of mankind's history back into their control, regardless of which side you're talking about, they're going to take those operations versus just the straight military victories. So it's kind of difficult to war game this area, but it's absolutely, I think, in, in, 
in the pattern that we've seen. And if we look at history as well, the historic pattern, it's going to begin with some sort of defensive claim from Israel that becomes a much larger conflict. Well, I'll tell you, you war game it with the best of them, SG. But, you know, as you were talking, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, this sounds like everything that we're, we're discussing tonight. I mean, we, we've obviously had the Russian and Ukraine war going on now for quite some time. But when this expands and this, the Pacific gets set off and whatever that trigger there is that sets off the Middle East, it sounds to me like World War III. And I think, you know, I, I, I kind of was curious. I mean, is that what this is going to feel like? I mean, is that the way this is going to be characterized? Because in, in my the way that I've always viewed this playing out was that we were going to have these regional kinetic military operations that had to happen, but that we weren't going to see a worldwide conflagration. We weren't going to see World War III actually come to pass. But it it seems like what we're discussing is going to, it sounds an awful lot like World War III to me. So um, what do you, what, is, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that that's ultimately where we're headed or is there going to be, is it going to be more limited in scope and not in the same way that World War One and Two dragged on for years. I mean, is that what we're headed for, or is, do you think this? You see this resolving much more quickly because I think all of us have really been, of course, hoping and praying and and really genuinely believing that we're very close to the finish line. So, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I guess my thoughts on that. First off, I want to say I don't I don't see this going nearly as far as the previous two world wars because we're not trying to repeat the history, right? We're trying to sort of alter and change. Uh, the implication of some of that history and some and the the imprint that some of that history has made here in the world, right? Um, you know, President. I guess my answer to the question would be: President Trump continues to highlight, "I will prevent World War III." He uses this term at almost right. every speech, every rally, every public engagement he goes to. And so, sort of the reverse logic of that, if we if we walk that back a little bit, is is if he's using this as a campaign term, "I will prevent World War III." Well, if he's going to prevent something like that, it has to be something that the general public is aware of as a as either a very serious possibility or is actively beginning to try and, and start. Right. Um, and we're obviously not quite to that point yet because we've got a lot of individuals out there um, who are well-meaning. And I think if they if they could disconnect themselves from um, some of the lamestream media prostitutes, they could really get to a better point uh, very quickly, you know, patriotically. But. There's a lot of people out there that still think the Ukraine war is some sort of warped, justified conflict that we're somehow um, preserving the little guy and bolstering, you know, the American spirit. Right. Um, even with some of the claims that have come out with the war, I think everyone's sort of universally united in the idea that it's a waste of American money and that American money shouldn't be there. But we still have a lot of people that feel like the war itself at a moral value at a moral level is justified. And so if we're looking at preventing World War III, well, nobody wants World War III, and we all sort of know that. Um, but in order to prevent World War III, we would need to arrive at a point where the public was at minimum extremely concerned that World War III was going to happen as sort of an imminent event. Um, and I think at most would actually begin, we would be beginning to see the initial um you know, saber rattling and the initial sort of, you know, gloves flying in one direction or the other that would lead to such a conflict. And a conflict in the Middle East would sort of create a worldwide war scenario because you have China that has 
uh, military uh, arms deals with Egypt and Saudi Arabia right now and is negotiating a number of the same for Northern African countries. So the Chinese interests and especially the Chinese military from an equipment basis would be heavily involved in any any sort of conflict like that. Um, And China is already aware of and knows the conflict is coming in the Pacific because they've been shipping um, assets to the coastal cities down there just across the straits from Taiwan for a a number of weeks now. I mean, the docks are absolutely full. What, What photos you can find online, there's not a whole lot, but the ones that you can I mean, the docks are just littered with Chinese military equipment, um, boxes and pallets that are, you know, the 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 typical like World War II style nailed together in, you know, in wood pallets and crates. Um, and they're they're preparing for an expanded conflict. So I think when Trump says I will prevent World War Three, what he's saying is I'm going to be able to come in at a time in some form or fashion where some some conflict or series of conflicts around the world is threatening to congeal and expand to what amounts to a nuclear war. He keeps using that word as well. Um, But I do think that we drive all of the way up to the precipice with that um, and how far we go as far as the precipice is concerned. I think that's anyone's game and anyone's guess. Um, I still believe that some point along the way, and it could be the impetus for a true Uh, military intervention here in the United States. I think that we're going to see some sort of activation of the People's Liberation Army here in the form of uh, maybe a Red Dawn style event or a Pearl Harbor style event from within, which would be the perfect way to incapacitate the U.S.'s ability to intervene if you were China and you were going to bolster North Korea in a South Korean campaign and simultaneously move into Taiwan. Um, and these sorts of things can be accomplished in a number of hours, right? But it is a it is a, a worrisome and disturbing process. And I think that's why Q says so many times, if things go dark, please know patriots are in control. We're in control. We have control of key sectors, key initiatives, important components of the game board that make it impossible for these people to win. But we still have to shake them out of the tree. Wow. A red dawn scenario. So you think that... I, I'm sorry. I just I just focused in on that really quickly because I was thinking. I mean, you, you you said so many things that I could comment on, but wouldn't that bring us really into a civil war type of situation? If that if if something like that were to happen, where you had because this is and this is something I'm glad you mentioned it because we know that there have been massive amounts of military aged Asian men who have been crossing the border for quite some time now, and they've amassed. God knows how many troops where they're where they're keeping them apparently underground is what I've heard is they they're in essence waiting on orders to do something similar to what you just described. But to me, again, you know, this in some ways to me seems like it would be a direct avenue to get the people because obviously there's how many million guns in the hands of we the people directly involved in a military engagement with the enemy. And how do you put the toothpaste back in the tube at that point? Or do you think, because I personally, I don't think you can once, you know, once certain lines are crossed, I don't really think you can draw it back unless of course I'm, I could be wrong, obviously in the military or the, the flip side of the coin is, 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 could it be another precipice type of a situation where the military steps in immediately? Because obviously if, if that happens, and the Chinese launch an assault on the American people on American soil directly, kinetically with soldiers. I mean, that's going to get people off the couch real quick, if you know what I'm saying. So 
what do you think of that? What do you think of that assessment? Do you think it would play out that way or do you think that I'm overstating it? Um, I think maybe maybe we're overstating prematurely right now because it, it is sort of a hypothetical situation, but one that's possible nonetheless. Um, I, th- I will say this. If you're looking for a way to catalyze people into being okay with the U.S. National Guard stepping into community situations and sort of taking control for a short period of time, um, that would absolutely be a situation where I can't imagine anyone from any political side anywhere in the United States having a problem with it. The United States of America has never been um, openly invaded by a mass power, except for just a, a couple of times, right? The American Revolution, then we saw sort of a repeat with the War of 1812, and then very, very briefly in World War II um, and the Korean War, we had assets from Japan and Asia get into the Aleutian Islands and into the, the Western Coast areas. But as far as a true uh, invasionary force and a compromise to our security as human beings. That's never really occurred in America, certainly for a number of generations. Um, and so what's on, what's something that Q talks a lot about? Q talks about the border a lot. Um, Q talks about California specifically, uh, which is known to import just about any criminal and uh, any cartel asset that you could you know, possibly imagine. Uh, with very little repercussions. Q talks about Arizona a lot, which is a trafficking pathway for a number of coyotes. And the dirt out there is uh, really nice and rock hard. So you can transport heavy equipment and, you know, large uh, shipments of things. Um, and, and you do it, you know, through the desert, which is relatively difficult to track unless you're a military power, right? Unless you have the ability to mass surveil at high level. And a lot of the civilian law enforcement in those areas just do not have those capabilities. Um, So, you know, I think that when we talk about a possible Red Dawn style scenario and catalyzing people, I think it's more um, rather than Chinese soldiers coming out per se. I think it's more of a um, an espionage style assault on our law enforcement institutions, quite frankly. Um, We're already seeing the the sort of the blue taken to task, if you will, by this, um, you know, deep state mob over the last six to seven years, really the entire time of the Trump presidency. Um, and I think that uh, is going to continue now how it plays out. You know, again, Patriot, this is so speculative that I really I couldn't say. But I can say that a critical national emergency is going to be necessary if you're going to stick National Guard troops that are, you know, from the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force and different reserve component divisions uh, out into the streets and tell Americans that they need to go home. Americans don't like being told what to do. Um, we're very stubborn. It's one of our greatest you know, strengths, but it's one of our greatest weaknesses as, as well. And it, it sort of provides an Achilles heel, if you will, um, for a, an operation like this, where we need the public to sort of be trusting and not so stubborn, right, for once. Um, so going through the process, I really don't, I, I don't feel qualified to, to flesh it out and say, but I can say that with President Xi coming out and stating, excuse me, uh, recently, I think it was just a handful of weeks ago that the future, this is his words, the future and destiny of mankind rests on whether or not the people of uh, the United States and the people of China can learn to live together peacefully and properly. Mm. I think that's a harbinger. I think that statement is code for because it's about to get tested. Um, And so we all need to sort of learn to love one another because it's part of the process. I really think that's what Xi was telling us. Um, Now, how that plays out, my friend, I, again, I don't know as I'm qualified to answer, but I think the scenario is one to consider. <laughs> and I think China has a vested interest in disempowering 
uh, Biden Inc. and the ability of what remains of a bankrupt U.S. corporation to respond militarily or otherwise to any power plays that they make in the Pacific. Absolutely. Well, let's switch gears a little bit here and let's talk a little bit about the financial side of things. Now, very clearly, I mean, I mean, it couldn't be more obvious to everyone that the financial system is in trouble, bare minimum. In my view, it's crumbling, and I think you probably would agree. And it's only a matter of time until the wheels come off and it all comes crashing down in what I believe to be a controlled demolition. I believe you probably would agree with me on that. But there's certainly no denying that the rest of the world has recognized the toxicity of this Babylonian debt matrix. And as we see with the BRICS alliance, they're leading the charge to de-dollarize by rolling out gold-backed currency, which I happen to believe is the covert introduction, uh, excuse me, introduction of Jasara. And so as we get closer to this inevitability, it's increasing the sense of urgency in the awakened to be as prepared as possible for this transition. So when this moment happens, again, we're kind of going into speculative mode. But again, I mean, even when I ask you to speculate, you always give great intel. And certainly your your opinions are worth hearing because they're so well-researched, but it's still speculation. But describe how you envision us transitioning from the EAS into the full rollout of Nasara and Jasara, and, or we could kind of scale it back a little bit if you want to just kind of talk about what you see happening in the financial world that's ultimately leading us in that direction. But I'm curious, you know, how do we get there and how far away really do you think we are from seeing this house of cards come crumbling down? How, how much longer can the Fed prop itself up? Um, I dished a lot of you know, questions. I'm sorry. Not a problem, my friend. It's it's a difficult subject because it it has so many different feeler arms and off branches and tributaries that are important, and they're I think they're important components to an overall consideration. Anyway, um, when we look at what happens in the financial sector, I think we all know that the North American and Western markets are going to continue to retract and recede, continue to retract and recede as we move the Hydra out of the rest of the world. We're seeing that process very actively done right now in Africa. Um, some of those governments are, uh, their militaries are outright uh, throwing coups and uh, kicking out the central banks and anyone related to the central banking model and uh, any Washington DC backed interests. And then you have other nations down there that um, aren't taking such bold action, but they're attempting to disconnect or at the very least divest from the U.S. dollar and any sort of Washington, D.C. and NATO-backed aid to include financial and military in, in exchange for doing that with Russia instead. And Russia is offering them competitive deals, right? Part of this is negotiating at the business table, and uh, the Russians have agreed to a number of different provisions about exports of their own grain, their own fuel, military protection, um, and, and sort of um, you know, cooperation agreements and things like that. So de-dollarization is something that is, is inevitable in this process. And that's going to affect, of course, the European Union, the European uh, currencies, because a lot of them um, tied to the same central banking model, right? UBS just purchased Credit Suisse and actually succeeded through with that process. And UBS has already had its uh, reputation curtailed by Moody's once in this process, just in the last six months. So this is a time where the central banking model is being re rejected around the world and there is no military muscle. There's no bouncer in the back of the room to force your acceptance of that model. 
Um, and so naturally, because people are being given the choice, they're choosing the, the, the better of, uh, of the available options at hand. Now, how does that translate to an EAS? Again, I think for an EAS, we need a very significant event. I think it's possible we see a, a reattempt at the 9-11 playbook, right? That was an event that was done um, over a number of weeks, planned for a number of weeks and coordinated and executed and um, done uh, to prevent the changeover to a new financial law, a law that the U.S. Congress had lawfully passed and that was going to come into effect and had a number of different line items and, and bullet points that were extremely important. Um, but I think we see a possible reattempt at that, but I don't think we see that until we've seen a number of other nations out there um, to include Russia and China and all of the world's big economies outside of Western Europe and North America. Um, I think we see them iron out internal agreements for their own security and their own peace of mind before they begin um, attempting to replace the agreements out there with the United States, right? And in that process, the peoples of the United States are being asked to shoulder quite the burden um, because you are talking about inflation scenarios at large levels, potentially even larger than we have now for a short time. You're talking about um, you know, the valuation of goods um, going up relative to the cost of living. Um, and so you know, when we look at these these types of things, we have to remember that this has to be part of the process to get everyone disconnected from the snake. And we live with the snake. So we can't get it. We can't kill the snake until we make sure that everyone's uh, outside of it. Else we end up with the, the problem of um, the snake sort of reinventing itself like a phoenix in another area of the world. And that's just not a risk I think that any of us want to take. If we look at what this power structure has been able to do to humanity through their control of the money since at least the 1750s. Um, and I think the war in the Pacific that we were talking a moment ago is going to be part and party to really taking the North American markets for a loop. China is, is one of the largest holders of U.S. Treasury debt, and we know that. And a lot of people are well aware of that. Everything's made in China, so they have to be holding us by something, right? Um, but what a lot of people don't know is Japan is one of the largest holders of the U.S.'s commercial sector debt. And the commercial sector is being absolutely trounced right now. And we don't even have the Japanese markets affected by some sort of active conflict. So if that were to spawn off, you could see a collapse very quickly of the U.S. real estate debt market um, in a 2008 on steroids style event. Um, and these things could, again, you know, Patriot, they could tie together and be over very quickly, right? It doesn't just because we're describing these these world changing events, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to take weeks. 9-11 was one day. Um, and then the ensuing month after that, right, the ensuing month after that really changed the landscape of what it meant to be an American forever. We're, we're only now getting to the point of arresting that process and changing it back. So the financial component is is difficult, I think, for a lot of people to hear. But in the long run, it becomes very exciting because you open up the ability for free and fair trade and free and fair valuation of everything on an asset-backed standard that provides real value where you cannot get ripped off or you certainly can't be ripped off as easily. Um, and that has traditionally throughout history corresponded to an extraordinary rise in wages relative to the cost of living in whatever civilization that's that you're referring to when you talk about returning to a precious metal standard. Um, so it's, it's a very exciting time, I think, for a patriot, but it's not going to be without its trial by fire before it's all over. Absolutely. Brilliant answer. All right. Well, let's switch gears. I know I've got about 10 minutes left here, so I want to hit a couple of more subjects and then I'll let you go. So I remember a while back, you took a lot of heat talking about the potential for another pandemic rollout. 
And if I'm being honest, my first reaction upon hearing that was anger over the prospect of having to go through that nightmare again. But as time go, uh, excuse me, as time has gone on, it looks increasingly like this card is going to get played with the same timing that we saw going into the 2020 election cycle. And what I find interesting is that it appears as if they're going with COVID part two instead of rolling out some other pathogen. I remember you did files. You talked about Marburg as a possibility, and you, you know you referenced a whole bunch of articles. And but they haven't. They haven't gone in that direction, which suggests to me white hat control behind the scenes because the carbon copy similarities between what we all went through in 2020 and what's being geared up for right now, at least on the surface, that's the way it looks, seem to me to evidence an effort to amplify cognitive dissonance amongst the population. And that's a subject that we've talked about many times, consistent with the Alliance objectives of promoting a mass awakening. So what are your thoughts on this COVID redo that they're attempting again? And do you think this is all a part of the pantomime? You know, what's amazing is the the redo attempt with COVID, I, I'll be honest with you, Patriot, I didn't see COVID coming again. I, th I really thought I that these either. people weren't that stupid. Um, and so you're right. That suggests that we have some sort of compulsion occurring, some sort of um, dance monkey, if you will, kind of scenario happening in the background. Um, and it is, it is sort of comical and absurd to watch. Um, I forget the name that they used for it, BA-286, I think, and it had some other name. And the other name that they were circulating around in the media for a short time, I went and found the Latin translation of it. And if you go to the Galician Latin, it translates to penis. So, you know, these individuals are sort of sticking it literally in our faces in ways that are wow. sort of multidimensional in, in, in fashion. Um, and I, again, I think that does sort of serve to highlight and amplify exactly what you described, the cognitive dissonance that remains in the population. Um, we can be certain, I think, of a number of things. Getting people's attention um, in today's world involves, and especially in America, Patriot, we have to be honest with ourselves as, as a civilization. We love John Wayne. We love Saturday Night Live, um, or loved, I should say, maybe not anymore, but certainly in times past. We loved Star Wars, the drama of it, the, the fly by the seat of your pants, Top Gun. Um, you know, these are incredible uh, sort of iconic American films, right? And so they reflect a part of the American spirit. And part of that is the flair for the dramatic. Um, and so the reattempt at a pandemic lockdown, I think that's something that would shake a lot of people in a dramatic fashion. And they would go, wait a minute, what? Um, some sort of financial event, exactly the same situation. You know, wait a minute, what? Um, you know, these are, these are the sorts of points that we have to get people to. And what is encouraging news is it's been extremely effective along in the journey. I have people that are commenting on Rumble channels or excuse me, Rumble videos that I've put out now, both audio files and just various talks. And they're saying that they've just woken up in the last 90 days and that they're having a hard time digesting all of this and that it's beginning to make way too much sense. And they're looking at what's coming up with the fall and this um, shutdown that was just nearly averted and Russia uh, running nuclear drills and their milk, you know, continuing to cost, you know, sky high values. And they're saying it's all coordinated. Right. And so what's encouraging with that is people are realizing that it is, it is more than just corruption. It is by design. It is a designed system of corruption. And if there is a design, it means there's a designer. And if there's a designer, it means that there's someone who stands to benefit from the design. 
And so we can take those individuals out. And that's sort of the backtrace of logic that's coming from all of this. Um, you know, I still think that we're going to see the Biden administration or maybe even the Harris administration if we get to that point. Again, spe- you know, speculative, speculatively, there we go, speaking. Um, I think we're going to see that entity attempt to suspend the electoral process through the 1973 War Powers Act and 50 USC, um, I believe it's Section 1550 and 1701. We've been in a state of continuous military dictatorship here in the United States of America since September the 23rd of 2001. And we are now seeing the fruition of that process because it's like the laws don't matter. The Constitution doesn't matter. The courts just ignore it. Uh, they decide you know, things based on standing, and the government has extraordinary and unfettered power with no oversight to direct the courts on what they can and cannot see through things like the state secrets privilege. So when we invoked a national emergency under 50 USC under President Bush, and the 1973 War Powers Act came into effect, which grants the president the unilateral right to declare war outside of the Congress, We've been in a state of military dictatorship for 22 years, but it couldn't be a public dictatorship because there's 185 million gun owners in the United States of America. <laughs> and so right. a public dictatorship wouldn't last very long. Um, but now we're seeing the fruition of this sort of come to pass and the realization in the American population's consciousness that their government has turned on them. It's beginning to really set in for people that their government has is not just ambivalent towards them, but is is absolutely hostile in every way towards them. Um, and it is it is spurring a change in the American spirit that I don't think has ever been seen. It was certainly at least since the Civil War and maybe before that, Patriot. It's it's actually it's a very it's it's an uncertain time, but it's a very exciting time. It sure is. Well, this has been an incredible conversation, SG. I'm just going to ask you one more question. Very, very simple. I know it's a simple question, but not a simple answer, but I have to ask because I started the show with a question, like you said, that was on everybody's lips. So I might as well end with it. I think it's a, it's nothing new necessarily, but do you think that we're going to see the EAS prior to November, 2024? Yes. Um, I feel rather confident about that. Actually that time frame. um, it, you know, from here to the end, we're in uncharted waters. We've never impeached or excuse me, we've never vacated a House speaker before. Right. Um, it's been a while since we've had a truly successful impeachment of any kind. As a matter of fact, I don't think we have a successful impeachment and removal of a president um, all the way from beginning to end on our record books. I think we had a couple of resignations, if my history serves me correctly. Um, and I think that that process is going to carry all of the way through before this is over, as well as the 25th Amendment. We're seeing the 14th Amendment laid out right now. And the Supreme Court just ruled that Trump cannot be excluded from the ballot on the basis of the 14th Amendment. Um, so now we have it in case law that we can't you know, manipulate that vector into um, uh, disallowing someone, excuse me, the opportunity to run for president. But we also have these Trump trials coming up. We have the expansion of this NATO conflict, which includes the United States. We have a potential market collapse, which could coincide with an expansion of hostilities in the Pacific. We have vested U.S. military assets all around the world. Um, We may not know all of the ones that are good and bad, but we know that a lot of them are still around the world in different nations, and they're going to have to leave uh, because that's part of Jacera. We know that 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 agreement will eventually come to the fold. We don't need military forward deployment in any form under that sort of worldwide peace arrangement because no one's going to be hostile, right? Um, 
and war has always been a for-profit activity anyway by those who own stock in in, in all sides of the conflict. Um, so you know, but I, but as far as the EAS, I don't know how long it takes, and that's that's where I'm um, a little bit maybe less qualified to talk about this topic. I know that it could come from a number of different scenarios. We've highlighted a lot of them on this call. Um, it could come in a number of different um, time frames. There's lots of symbolic time frames between, you know, October and um, the the next summer of any given year period, right? And that doesn't even include the fact that we're missing an entire month and that the calendar is actually skewed a couple of months off. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's a consideration as well as far as time frames. When we look at the timing that such a, a large scale overreaching military operation would set off something like a worldwide alert. I think you would want to do so by God's celestial clock and not necessarily the warped clock that these individuals stuck out there for everyone to see, which makes it very, very difficult to discuss anything regarding to time or timelines because we're not really talking with the same language, right? Or the same basic understanding of, of where time falls in relation to the actual season we're living in. Um, what I think is really exciting is that Q tells us an EBS is coming. Q tells us that patriots are in control. Q tells us that there will be a moment where the people will realize that we are taking back our land from the individuals who wish to destroy it and do us harm. Um, Q has said a number of times that this is a worldwide operation. Drain the swamp does not mean Washington, D.C. It means everywhere. Um, and that does take you know a little bit of time. And what's really cool, I think, patriot, is the American people while while it does have its difficulties and it presents its its you know daily life horrors and 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 terrors that are hard to overcome we are refounding the republic in a way that is being done without large scale bloodshed and without feeding the very war machine that so desperately craves money power and influence right we're we're sort of circumventing that in the only way possible which is to go through the civilian levers as much as, as much as we can and change over as much of the corporate extensions into our societies that these individuals have stuck out there. And we're doing that very successfully. So this really is, while a difficult time, it is the best time I think that any of us could have chosen to be alive because we're getting to experience the, the living history of the American Revolution in, a more, in a, more of a bureaucratic sense, if you want to call it that. <laughs> Excuse me. And we're also receiving a complete education in how our Republican constitutionalism and the type of government that we really are supposed to have in the United States and elsewhere around the world actually is supposed to work. We're not a democracy. The difference between a democracy and a republic, according to the Black's Law Dictionary of 1868, I believe, um, is that a democracy is led by elected leaders, right? The republic is led by public servants. And so there is a right. difference in the legal implication. And we're learning that together, I think, as a civilization again. It's not anything new, but it is something that they were very successful at erasing from all of our history and, and literature and textbooks for 120 plus years. So now we're back at a point where we're being reminded of who we are, what we have, and how we can prevent um, this sort of scandal um, from ever entrapping humanity again. That's the coolest part about this to me. Well, I got to tell you, SG, I'm just always amazed. I could I could chop it up with you all day long, but I know that we're we're out of time. I want to respect your time, and I want to thank you once again for for gracing us by coming onto this platform. It's always an honor to have you. 
Is there anything, I mean, you've said so much tonight. Is there any uh, final thoughts you want to leave uh, with the audience before we part ways? My final thoughts are that Trump is, uh, he's getting to the point where he's trying to be painfully obvious without being obvious that we really do have control of key sectors of the game board, that there really is more at play here. Um, when he comes out and makes calculated errors, like what he said at the UAW speech, what he said at the Bedminster speech, um, how he's talking about Hillary with, you know, she's beautiful Hillary now, you know, and things like that. And then at one rally, he confirmed that Hillary uses doubles. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he said he's talked about Joe Biden being shot multiple times. Um, and then we've got events like what's occurring with these court appearances where he goes into the courtroom behind closed doors for a while, comes out. Um, essentially has his way with the press, defines the narrative moving forward. No one even really um, presses him on what the judge actually said or what the specifics of anything really are. Um, and then he walks away like a badass. So at the end of the day, you know, what we're being, I think, shown is that there's more at play than what we realize. And that an important component of getting through this together is to realize that it does take all of us together. We can iron out some of the social differences later. We can iron out some of the philosophical discussions that you know present themselves during these times later. The important mission, I think, is to get humanity awake and aware of what's occurring and what has been occurring right under their noses and within their own bodies for a number of years now, probably all of their lives, depending on where they're located, so that we can begin the process of extracting that or not. I shouldn't say begin because we're already underway, but so that we can continue adding momentum to is a better way to say it. The process of extracting these um, mafiosos from all areas of our society, right? We've got grand juries popping up across the United States. We've got investigative committees popping up in different state legislatures. We've got a number of different um, election runs highlighting massive amounts of localized fraud that people in the communities in these areas are just incensed about. And they're bringing all of their, um, their um, might and clout to bear on these issues financially, um, you know, with public pressure, grassroots activism, all of these sorts of things. It's occurring all through the United States and it's only getting bigger. Uh, just recently, I watched a video of an interview on Fox News where a gentleman, um, the, the reporter was out there trying to get a feel, I think, for the public timbre as it pertained to uh, some of the migrant policies that were going on in New York City. And this guy that was there he was so angry. He was crying on on uh, television and he was attempting to talk to this reporter and he kept escalating his voice. And I think you could tell that even he was trying to dial it back and you could, he wasn't quite able to keep it together all the time through that um, conversation. And he talked about the pride in the city and things like this. And I'm not I'm not using this example to highlight the negativity for it. I'm using it to highlight the fact that the American spirit is being absolutely rekindled through an unfortunate, um, painful process, but a process that is necessary if we're going to avoid mass levels of open bloodshed, chaos, and quite frankly, a lot of death that we don't need to um, add to the mix. We've already absorbed a lot of that. That's been a part of this process as well, unfortunately. Um, and as we come to the other side, as we go through these end events into the 2024 election season, I don't think we make it all the way to 2024. President Trump has himself has said that Biden's not going to make it all of the way to the gate. Um, and he also confirmed on air with NBC that Hunter Biden's sweetheart deal was the art of the deal in action, um, you know, which I take to translate as continuity mm -hmm. of government. Mm -hmm. um, 
so this is a really exciting time for everyone out there, but you have to remember where to look and you have to believe your own lying eyes sometimes and not the fervor or the, the discontent that comes from family members or friends or uh, disjointed colleagues or individuals that are just um, having a hard time with the awakening process because, because you're, I think your part in this, everyone's part in this as part of a, the digital army and the awakened community is to hold this torch long enough though, that other people can light their matches. And so we're, we're coming into those times now, and I think it's going to be really vindicating for a lot of Anons out there, but it's not going to be without its difficulties as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Once again, SG, I want to just thank everybody out there who was listening live. We had quite an audience tonight. So I thank each and every one of you for taking the time to listen. I'll be back soon with another report. And until then, God bless and Godspeed. Patriot out. All right. Well, thank you so much, my friend. I really do appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, brother. I hope you have a great night. Let's get together again soon. Absolutely. I'll be in touch. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.